Hello and welcome at the PAVE podcast created for the professional working to end violence against women and children. I'm Alianne, your host, and today I'm honored to talk with Kirti. Kirti is an activist, artist and writer from Chennai, India. She founded and runs the Red Elephant Foundation, a civilian peacebuilding initiative that works for gender equality through storytelling, advocacy and digital interventions. She is a member of the Youth Working Group for Gender Equality. Kirti is the recipient of the U.S. Presidential Services Medal for her services as a volunteer to Delta Women NGO and the two-time recipient of the UN Online Volunteer of the Year Award. Kirti is also the recipient of the Global Peace Prize from WeSchool and the Rising Star of India Award from We the City India. Her second book, The Dove's Lament, made it to the final shortlist for the Muse India Young Writers Literary Award. Kirti was recently invited to the United States of Women's Summit at the White House in Washington, D.C. as a nominated changemaker. She is also a Zen doodler and her works have been commissioned by corporate establishments, non-profits and art collectors world over. Kirti, nice to meet you and welcome at the PAVE podcast. Can you t- please tell us more about yourself? Can you, for example, tell us about your life and what you do now? Okay, so um, my name is Kirti and I am from Chennai, from South India. Um, So I was born to a Hindu family. I lived with my parents, my mom and dad and my younger brother. Um, So I went to law school where I studied for five years. In India, you have have something called the integrated law course that takes all of five years to complete. Uh, Some of my more formative experiences happened when I was in high school and when I was at law school. So I went through a lot of different kinds of abuse as a child. Um, I faced sexual abuse as a child. I faced uh, bullying and racism as a teenager. And I faced a lot of ethnic violence when I was in college. Um, And in many ways, all of these things sort of shaped me and made me very empathy driven. I think in many ways, it also hurt me a lot. So I chose silence over articulation of things that happened to me. Eventually, that led to a lot of manifestations in my health, because when you keep things bottled up, it tells on your health. Thankfully, though, at some point in the journey, uh, when the incident in New Delhi happened, which I think many people around the world know about, 16 December 2012, um, I personally went through a very huge transformation because on the very next morning, I was at the U.S. Consulate General in Chennai receiving an award from President Obama for my work with an NGO called Delta Women NGO. But when I received the award, I actually felt like quite a hypocrite because um, I was receiving an award for work around the empowerment of women, but a couple of miles down the city that I was living in, this girl was battling for her life after being brutally gang raped. And I felt terrible because what kind of, what kind of a world am I living in if I'm receiving an award for doing work when there's still so many women suffering? But then what happened soon after was that I came up with my own story because after 20 odd years of silence, I had spoken for the first time um, about being raped as a child, about surviving sexual abuse as a child. And I told my mother, who was the first person um, I reached out to, And she's a life coach, so she gave me two options. She said, you can feel uh, terrible about this, you can be depressed, you can do whatever you want and mourn about it, fine. Or you can do this for some time and then pick up your life and move on beyond with it. And she said, whatever it is that you do, remember that it's your choice and whatever you choose, I'm with you. Um, So I spent six months in the entire time um, thinking very deeply about everything that happened. I did a lot of work around alternative healing, I did a lot of journaling, I did a lot of artwork. And six months later on the 5th of June, which is my mom's birthday, um, I gave her the gift of my empowerment and I founded the Red Elephant Foundation. So 
That was quite a transformative journey if, um, when I look back. Uh, with The Red Elephant, I decided that I would start telling stories of survivors because when I told my own story, many people who bullied me because I was quiet actually came back to me saying, hey, I'm so sorry, I had no idea you were going through this. And so I realized that silence is the biggest abettor of violence, as, as catchy as phrased that as it sounds, but it's actually true. So I decided that I would start telling stories. But then once I told the stories, I realized that many schools were using these stories to tell their children. And then they came across this space of what next. So I started developing a curriculum that the children could then act upon. And then we created a group of volunteers at the Red Elephant. And we founded something called Chalk Peace, except it's spelled as C-H-A-L-K-P-E-A-C-E. So we're into peace education and we get a lot of children to think critically about things like gender equality, about nonviolence and to be tolerant and, and respectful people. So that's my journey in a nutshell. Wow, it's really inspirational. And I was wondering, um, the red elephant, how did you come up with that name? What, what does the red elephant stand for? Sure. So we often do talk about some of the issues that we face in life, especially when it comes to things like sexual abuse, bullying, um, domestic violence, yes. for that matter, anything that we face. So there's always an elephant in the room. Yes. But what if we paint that elephant in the room red till you simply cannot stop talking about it, right? Because you, you can't ignore it anymore. So you have to start talking about it. And you're not going to stop talking about it until the red elephant shrinks. So that's the goal. Creative. I really love that idea. That's really awesome. I really didn't, well, I didn't have, I wouldn't have guessed that. Let, let it put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. But it's, it's also interesting because when we went down the line, we realized that elephants are matriarchal. So they've got it on with gender equality before humans have. So that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so much smarter than we are. <laughs> oh, yes. Absolutely. And beautiful and beautiful. And I was wondering, how did you became involved with the United Nations uh, Nations Interagency Network on Youth Development? I was really so my journey. So many questions for you. <laughs> you do so many. <laughs> You're so kind. Um, so my journey, actually, in terms of associations with the UN, goes back to 2010. Uh, when I started off as an online volunteer with the UN platform, and I worked with over 16 agencies and NGOs um, across the world, specifically focusing on some aspect of gender. So by the time I founded the Red Elephant Foundation, um, the tables had turned. This time I was calling for volunteers for my organization through the UN network. So one of my team work was actually around the My World survey, which the UN put together for the development of the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, so we had a brilliant volunteer called Carol Arambula who came up with this amazing campaign of getting in touch with young people around the world, getting them to vote on the My World campaign, and then taking a selfie about one of the top priorities that mattered a lot to them. So with Carol, we started doing a lot of Twitter advocacy. We started talking a lot about sustainable development goals and how the world is going to look. And then we got in touch with uh, Ravi Karkaral of the United Nations, um, especially the UN Women. And he is this amazing genius when it comes to um, youth action and gender equality. So he got me on board at the, at the youth uh, working group at the UNIANYD. And um, since then, it's just been one amazing journey to the next. We had uh, Ravi on the show too. And um, I was really inspired by his story too. 
Well, one of the other amazing things is you did you, you received the U.S. Presidential Services Medal in 2012. Um, tell me about that. So this again goes back to the UN online volunteering. You know, when I think about it, I owe so much to that division in the UN. Really, if, if any of you are listening to this, thank you for everything. Um, <laughs> well, so um, I was associated with an NGO based out of Nigeria and the US called Delta Women. And this NGO worked specifically around the rights of women and children in the Delta state in Nigeria. Yes. And it so happened that there was this one village in the Delta state that didn't have a school for 30 years. So in that entire time, children would actually spend 25 kilometers upwards and 35 kilometers downwards just to be able to go to school and come back home. Uh, now that was terrible. And so when some of these people sent in photographs to the founder of the organization, Elsie, she wrote in to me with these photographs saying, you know, I know we're, we're entirely online, but we're going to have to do something. So I started with writing blog posts and I did very short videos back before videos were really a big thing. And then I got, and I got on Twitter, I got on Facebook, I did a lot of advocacy work on these two platforms, again, back before they were really big. Uh, and then when we reached out with attention to the Nigerian ministry, um, they decided, okay, we're going to do something about this. So they built the first school 30 years after the, the earlier school was established. And that was a huge moment for us because as an NGO, we've done this entirely online without any funds, without um, anybody going to the field. It was really a turning point because I think it's a case study for the world to see how much online action can you know, create lasting impact. So eventually that led to the award and then two awards from the UN as well, which was the Online Volunteer of the Year Award. Uh, so I was really proud and encouraged by it. And you're so young still, and you're around my age, and I'm inspired <laughs> by um, what you do and what you accomplish. It's really like... Thank you. Can you tell me more about your experience at the United States Women's Summit? Can you tell me more about that? The United States of Women? Yes. Thank right. You. Yes. Yes. So last year, um, on the 14th of June, Michelle Obama had convinced... Uh, had, had, convened what's called the United Nations, no, the United States Summit, which is, which is this enormous program that brought amazing women from all over the world. And about 100 young women around the world were invited as nominated change makers, of which I was one. But I was in India, and I got to know about a week before the event. So everything from visas to affording the flight tickets became really difficult for me to put together. Because, you know, India, the U.S., the, the visa wait time is about a month. And um, though the consulate over here were amazing, they were really incredibly supportive and said they would help me out. But my, my passport was stuck with the Austrian embassy because I was due to leave to Vienna a month after that. So I, I couldn't visit, but I participated virtually. And it was, I think, one of the more fulfilling experiences because um, I, I got to not just learn from women in politics, but also some amazing women who've done some really incredible work, like Planned Parenthood, um, and then women who work with the American Indian community so it's, it's great because you get to learn all these strategies, the kind of work that's gone on in the, in the whole global wave of feminism. And I'm still, I still have goosebumps when I'm talking about it. It's one of the most amazing experiences of my life, even though I didn't get to see it. I'm, I'm really a terrible planner. How in the world, with so many things going on in your life, how, how in the world do you manage your time? How do you keep everything going, spinning out of control? 
<laughs> well, I, I'll be really honest in telling you that a lot of times it only seems like I'm doing a lot of things. But to be very honest with you, so um, I come from a family that sleeps very little. So from the time I was a child, uh, we, you know, as a family, we sleep at 2 a.m. Indian time and we're up at about 5 a.m. So that's like three hours. So there's a standing joke that says all four of us have manufacturing defects. <laughs> it's a joke in the extended family. But so when you're, when you're asleep for just that much time and you still have the energy to you know, do your other stuff, you're, you start finding ways to fill your time. So um, honestly, I mean, it, like I said, it only feels like I'm doing a lot of things. It's just that I fill my time um, when I don't have anything else to do. And so that kind of just keeps the list going. <laughs> but, but to be honest, um, I do understand that, you know, when it comes across like a lot of things at once, but I love doing each of it. I love being a storyteller. I love writing. Um, I love doodling. Um, and I love talking to amazing people like you. I mean, right now we're connecting. I'm learning so much from you. Um, and I, and I feel like that that's, that's really what it is. So, you know, each, each day at a time, and then you, you just keep your expectations low, and then you might find yourself really sort of doing better. Can you tell me a little bit more about your storytelling, about your writing experience? Can you tell me more about that? Sure. So I started off as a writer when I was um, in high school. Um, I wrote a couple of stories that got published both at the school magazine and then beyond, uh, which was a big deal then because we were, I live in a small city, which is just kind of growing up right now. Uh, but in the years after that, when I was in law school, I did a little bit of freelance journalism as um, on the side, like some of us wanted to do this to sort of keep the money coming in, which was interesting because I got to see a lot of different people um, and wrote a lot of human interest stories about refugees from Sri Lanka, um, and then a lot of different stories about women in, in Chennai, women in Tamil Nadu, because uh, Chennai has this problem of female feticide. Uh, sorry, not just Chennai, but the state that I live in, it's called Tamil Nadu. And there was a problem called female feticide, which meant that they would kill young girls in the womb um, because they were girls. It was sex selective abortions. Um, and it was terrible because it, at one point our sex ratio as a state was terrible, just dismal. And that kind of created so many different kinds of problems as well. So uh, when I started writing these stories, I realized that although I was writing very true stories, they were not easy for people to read. Um, they get very graphic. And then some people are like, I, it's triggersome. I don't want to read it. So then I started using fiction as a vehicle to tell these stories. Um, and I would always offer up like a line of hope that would then inspire the person to take action because I wanted people to think that they could find hope in a very hopeless situation, which is pretty much what I did, even as a child. Um, to survive all the things that I survived, I did it only because I believed there was hope. So uh, when I started writing that way, my first book came out in 2013. It was called Stories of Hope, um, really short stories. Um, it didn't do very well because um, the publisher didn't sort of market it so much because nowadays books are all about marketing. <laughs> and then two years after that, um, I wrote another book called The Dove's Lament, which did pretty well because I was shortlisted for an award in the country for it. Um, and it talks about 12 different stories set in different conflict zones, everything from the Rwandan genocide to the Arab Spring to Israel and Palestine. Um, I've, I've tried to really sort of make these conflicts come out alive beyond newspaper headlines, which was very important to me because when you read a newspaper, you get a couple of statistics and then you're like, eh, okay, and then you're running the rest of your day. But somebody somewhere in the world is, is trying to stay alive and we need to be aware of that. 
So right now, though I've just finished my third book and I've given given it to my publisher, it's going to come out in three months. Um, it's called so the Doodler of. <laughs> thank you. It's it's called the Doodler of Damascus. It's a story set in Syria um, from the eyes of a child bride, talking about the conflict. Um, and I really hope that it does some justice to the lives of so many people there. Well, if you just pass me the links, I will put them in the show notes. Uh, for Thank you. Books, and then um, well, the listener can visit the, those sites. Yay. Um, Thank you. It really sounds exciting, the last book. And how, how long did you work on it? How long, how t- can you take me through, through the writing process? How, how do you come up with the subject and how does it form? So this story, The Doodler of Damascus, um, actually was a subject that formed from a very personal space. Um, I do something called Zen doodling, uh, which is my favorite art form. I use pen and inks to just kind of doodle pictures and everything. But I, on a very personal note, it's something that helps me heal. Um, every time I find myself upset and then I finish doodling, I feel like I've really healed something and I feel so much better. Um, and then from 2011 onwards, I started following the Syrian conflict very, very devoutedly. So looking at news, news streams, looking at stories, um, speaking with people on Twitter, writing some of their stories in the Red Elephant Foundation. Um, and when I did all of that, I came to understand that there is so much that we're missing out when we look at the conflict because we're looking at statistics, we're looking at who's throwing the guns and who's throwing the weapons. We're looking at the international community just kind of wringing its hands and saying, I don't know what to do about it. But we're not looking at what's happening on ground. I mean, because of the war, the number of instances of child marriage has risen. Because of the war, sexual abuse is on the rise. And because of the war, refugees, is a, if that's a crisis we're all seeing because it's affecting our borders. But what about the real everyday life? Like there are women who are out there pregnant, menstruating, not even being able to access these resources. Um, their bodies are at stake and they're, they're facing all kinds of access issues. They can't get education, no food, no water. Um, and then there's chemical attacks. They can't even breathe. And that's just, it was too de- devastating for me. So every day I read about the conflict, I decided I would just make notes so I would understand what was happening. And January of this year, um, I thought I had enough of notes. I did have um, some sort of, I felt very restless every time I read about it. So I had some sort of a drive to write the story. Uh, of course, it is not an authentic Syrian voice because I'm not Syrian, I'm Indian, and I'm writing it about a girl in Syria. But it's human. And that's what I really wanted to sort of stand out as. Wow, beautiful. And I'm, I really admire it because it's really a tough topic. Admire you that you can put yourself in their situation or at least trying to, to do that as far as you possibly can. Thank you. uh, you're welcome. What are you up to next? After your book is out, what are you going to do next? <laughs> So right now, um, what I really love about being able to be a social entrepreneur is that I get to learn a lot of things on the way. So right now, I am developing a mobile app, which is going to sort of help women who are surviving gender violence around the world to find help closest to them. So um, this is called the GBV Health Map. Um, You could check it out right now. It's a web-based app. It's called gbvhealthmap.crowdmap.com. And that's just going to be converted into a mobile app. And I'm having so much fun learning the coding. It's incredible. <laughs> so, so what's going to happen right now is that um, in the next two weeks, I'm going to finish the coding, test the app a couple of times. And I'm hoping to release it by the end of May. 
Um, I chose the end of May because um, in India, summer vacations are in May and there's nobody around if I want to do anything. So I just want to kind of do a bit of a workshop around it and then a couple of webinars. So that's the hope on one side. Um, on the other side, I'm also running a constant Instagram campaign around um, women's stories, which is called Femcyclopedia, where um, I do the portraits of amazing, inspiring women to add their voices in the public spaces. Um, and I hope, I mean, I'm going to do this little thing in, in, in the presence of all our listeners. Um, I would like to do your portrait with your permission, Ariane. <laughs> Because I think you're doing such a such an amazing job giving so many women around the world their voices through your podcast, um, and I think it's only fitting that I sort of repay that with a lot of love through Femcyclopedia. So, do I have your permission? I feel like I'm yes. proposing or something. I would love to. To oh, I'm really honored and oh, she said yes, <laughs> yes, wow, thank you. <laughs> so yeah, so that's what's happening right now. Yeah. Excited. I can't see this, but I'm blushing right now. So, <laughs> yeah, a little bit sunburned, but this isn't the sunburn. But um, I would uh, love to be um, part of your Instagram. Thank you. And, Thank you. And you, can, you, you can follow it as at Femcyclopedia. That's Encyclopedia, but instead of E N, you have F E M, the first three letters in feminism. So that's like putting women's voices back. Well, yeah. we put the links in the show notes. So just go to the to our blog, and then you can find all the the links from Kirti in uh, the blog. Wow, exciting! And I'm I'm really wondering uh, when you are old. It's a question I have asked all my guests until now. When you are old and are looking back to your life, what do you want to have accomplished? Um. My biggest dream is to have accomplished a gender equal world, mm. but I do understand that there is a bit of, I mean, I might see an, a unicorn before I do that, um, but when, I, when I'm old and when I look back, I think the one thing that I want to see is at least 10 people in the world having been enriched by something I did, yes. um, just 10 people at least, so that I can, I can die in peace if I know that I've helped at least 10 people in the world. Well, I think you will manage that. I don't think that will be a huge problem. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's encouraging. <laughs> you can uh, dream a little bigger now. <laughs> uh, and while well, you are really uh, doing a li lot of things on the behalf of peace, and you believe you are very inspired by the concept of peace. And I, I don't believe I have asked you this tonight, but why peace? So one of the things that I've understood at every point in life is that no matter what is happening in the world around you, there's a world inside of you. And that world is not always going to be pleasant if you're facing a lot of violence within or without. You can be incredibly violent with your thoughts. It's not just about punching a person or hurting a person physically, but it's about what you think and how you choose to act on those thoughts. So my mom, like I told you, is an alternative healer and a life coach. And one of the first things she told me was that if you're clean here and you're clean here, which is your heart and your mind, you're clean outside. So make sure that you live that life where your conscience is the only thing you answer to because you are the only constant in life. So when you're sort of in that space and then you export that thinking beyond you, peace becomes something like a life anthem. Uh, and one of the major things that I've realized is when you're de dealing with gender equality work or you're dealing with everything from sanitation to education, 
peace is the basic means to it, and peace is also the end. And the reason I say this is because, let's take, for example, gender equality. You're dealing with a community where men have been taught for ages that they have power, that they have a right to dominate over women. And then out of nowhere, you have this new young woman who comes into the room saying, hey, you guys cannot dominate <laughs> over women, right? So men are going to then feel isolated, and then they're going to feel like um, a part of their power is being taken away. So when you're taking away their power, they're going to feel disempowered. And so they're going to do everything they can to hold on to that power, including the violence. So instead of that, what if we walk the peaceful route and told them, hey, we're not taking away your power. We're just telling you, you can use your power wisely. We're just telling you that you have male privilege, but you can use that to prevent violence. You can be a great ally for gender equality. You can respect other women. And hey, you know, this is going to humanize you as well, because then you can wear that favorite pink shirt of yours. You can cook. You can, you can be a wildlife photographer. You don't have to be the breadwinner in the family. So, you know, what, what peace does is then to tell young boys and men that patriarchy harms them as well. So that, that kind of remains the core, core goal, because if, if you can speak the language of peace, you can attain, attain the goal of anything. If you have peace in your heart and peace in your mind and um, find gratitude for the lessons you will have in life, um, then you can find peace too. I, I, gratitude is a, a big part of my life to find peace and that's beautiful <laughs> finding uh, peace with the past and finding peace in the present and mm. um, just by practicing uh, gratitude but i really love how you uh, explained it of patriarchy that's really in, indeed it's hurting them as well thank you <laughs> do you it's also a question i always ask uh, do you have mm -hmm. any and the things you want to accomplish, do you have any constraints you are facing? Um, I think my only constraint that I'm facing is that I also very often tend to become very, very self-absorbed, uh, which is one of my biggest downfalls. And I don't have any shame in admitting it because only if you admit it will you change it. Uh, and when I say <laughs> when I say that I become self-absorbed is I tend to internalize a lot of things that happen around me and then I become depressed and then there are times when I want to give up things. Uh, I want to stop doing these things because in my mind I think it's not helping anyone, which is a very dangerous thing because if you've built a community of people who have come to believe that you've had solutions and then they've been inspired by you, then you're letting them down by sort of, you know, undoing everything. So um, again, that's that's also if you will. I'm sorry, it's just being me, so, you know, so self-absorbed. But um, yeah, that's it's that's honest. one thing that I want to. It's really you. honest, and and I really recognize a lot of of what you are experiencing at that moment because I really had a, a moment like that myself uh, not not mm -hmm. too long ago. So I really recognize what you're saying. So no, I love your honesty. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much for sort of. Putting that in perspective, because I feel I feel so much better about myself now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in good company. That's my constraint and that's what I want to work on. Um, but one of the things that I want to sort of accomplish in my lifetime would be um, 
definitely to to give my parents the life that they've dreamed of. I know this is very personal. It's it's very aside from um, what what my main work is. But then the reason I say this is my parents themselves have been victims of the patriarchy. My mom and my dad, and they've had so many dreams that they've put on hold in life because of what society expected of them and because of what the community expected of them. And I feel horrible because they never never stopped giving us anything we wanted by us, I mean, my brother and me. They've never um, sort of made us feel like we needed something and they didn't give us. So I want to be able to do that for them. I want to be able to be there for them, give them life they dreamed of. Um, and, I'm, and I save up like a little squirrel to be able to do that. So <laughs> fingers crossed. Yeah, well, I really hope you will accomplish that too. That, because I oh, that's a beautiful goal to well achieve. And um, as a writer, you probably read a lot of books too. And yes, a lot of books. Yay, please tell me, share them. <laughs> uh, who are your favorite writers? What are your favorite books? Sure, so my favorite writer is Susan Abulhaba. Um, she's written two amazing books, one called Mornings in Jenin and the other called The Blue Between Sky and Water, which is centered around the life in Gaza and uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict, but told from the voice of people from Palestine. Um, and the, the two books have really made me cry um, incredibly because these voices are just not heard. So I really love that book. Um, another book would be Mr. Mr. Pip by Lloyd-Jones, which is this beautiful book about um, the, the, the entire issue of race-based violence, which is very, very beautifully written. And right now I'm reading, I also in between very serious books, I also read very um, young adult fiction because that kind of makes me feel like I'm getting to know the, the demographics I work with. So there's this author called Jennifer Niven who's written this beautiful book called All the Bright Places, which talks about mental health. Um, and that, that one book I could, I could go back to a thousand times. But the biggest, biggest, best book would be Anne Frank's Diary. That's, that's where my journey started, and that's, that's where my journey will end. I, I, I don't know, I feel so connected with Anne. Um, it's very incredible uh, for me to say it because it's something I've never told anyone in public. Um, so you, you brought it out of me, lady. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel, I feel very connected with Anne um, because I, I, there was a point in my life when my nickname was Kitty, um, which is the, the name to whom Anne writes her letters in her diary. So I write my own journal and I write my letters to Anne. Um, and they're really sort of not just responses to letters that she's written in her diary, but then just about the world around. And every time I want to vent, I write in the journal. So uh, that's, that's a very huge um, uh, favorite. Well, uh, before the show, we talked that uh, whenever I will visit India, Kirti will show me around. And when she yeah. will visit the Netherlands, uh, I will show her around. But now I know what we will do. <laughs> <laughs> we will go to the Anne Frank house. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. You know, it, it's incredible, Ariane, because um, I'm, I'm talking about the Netherlands from the perspective of my favorite book. And then when we talked about, you know, your favorite book, Equal Love, and then the visit to India, it's amazing how these connections have been made just by reading, right? Yeah, absolutely. And also, well, the connection we have because of that. Because that's, yeah, yeah. I don't believe in coincidence. And so, no, um, yeah. so I really love this moment. Like Oprah will say, aha moment. <laughs> yes, it is. It totally is an aha moment indeed. If, if, if I was there, I would have put this on hold and given you a hug. 
Oh, I wish I could hug my uh, laptop now. <laughs> and do you have perhaps have a, a, a quote or something you can, can share with us? Um, there's this beautiful quote by Muhammad Ali, um, who says that social service is the rent that we pay for living on earth. Oh, that's no powerful. It is. It is. And it's, it's something that, that's, stayed with me because I'm usually not, not into sports in the form of sort of idolizing a sports person. But I came across this quote one day when I was just Googling random stuff. Um, you know, the way we do it when we're very bored. <laughs> came up. <laughs> so this came up and um, it was amazing because it was very awakening. Um, I did go through one of my self-absorbed moments then and I was very depressed and I was so sure that I was going to give everything up. And then this quote just comes up. It's like you said, there are no coincidences in life. It's all so purposeful, so meaningful. And this was one of that. I really want to thank you for uh, coming on to the show. For having me. It's beautiful. <laughs> it was awesome. And then I'm really glad to have a new friend now. Please visit the Netherlands and we will, we will go to the Anne Frank house. That would be lovely. That would be lovely. And please visit India. Visit Chennai. I cannot wait to take you around. <laughs> and then we can have a show as well. <laughs> But I really love it that we had a very honest conversation. One more question. Sure. My boyfriend and I only had four hours of sleep last night. Oh, I have two questions. This one is very <laughs> important. Only four hours of sleep. And we are both practically dead right now. And uh, because he sent me uh, an app and I, he was like, I'm so tired. And I was like, morning, I was so tired. How do you <laughs> only sleep like three hours? How is it, is it because of the warmth of how do you do that? Well, I think I've really known no different because every t ever since I was a child, yes. um, this is how much we've slept at home. Oh. Um, my mom and dad and my awesome. brother and me. Yeah, so I don't know. I really don't know because... A lot of people are like, hey, I want to sleep all weekend. I'm like, how do you do that? Teach me. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I want to learn that too because you have so much extra time then. So, much, so many more hours to do all kinds of things. And what you said in the beginning, that was also very true because about, well, my own experience with it is, and I've been sexually abused for over 10 years and by an uncle. And after that, my first boyfriend raped me, choked me, and everything else. And he abused me so much that my children were born seven weeks prematurely. But I didn't, uh, yeah, I, oh, I told you, I'm a fairy, yeah, everything out in the open. I didn't communicate well. I, I kept it inside as well. So I really recognize a part of your story my thyroid did yeah. stop working and if you look in alternative uh, healing practices yes. stand for communicating yes It's really yes. like normally uh, uh, older women get these things uh, like this but now i uh, since a few years i speak uh, publicly about this and uh, how we can improve care for women in domestic violence situations and so yeah. women who are sexually abused and how to promote gender-based fight of a promoter. I don't even know what I mean. No, end it. Yeah, of <laughs> course, of course. Yeah. Promote gender-based violence. Edit, 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 edit. <laughs> and, um, and in both Germany and the Netherlands. But 
I, I notice if you talk often, it won't heal in total, not totally, but it, it's getting better. So when you're talking about medical issues, I was like, I can relate to that, the two. So that's really, I never heard anyone else talk about that before this. So I was like, okay, it's getting uh, home. You are so brave. You are so brave. I wish... I really wish I could give you that hug. Uh, thank you for sharing your story. Uh, and I'm so sorry you had to go through that. I, I really, I really sort of, there is something like a force above, whether you call it God or whatever else, and there is always justice. Yes. But you are a beautiful soul and I love you. Oh, thank you and I love you too. And I'm really glad we met. I'm very, very glad we met. Thank you, Mandy. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll uh, text her and, uh, and well, uh, pay her my gratitude uh, later tonight. And, um, of course. Of course. Really, thank you so much. And, and just let's keep in touch. I, I, I really would Definitely. love to keep in touch with you. <laughs> Definitely. Likewise. Likewise. I will write to you and I will look forward to your photograph uh, so I can doodle it. Kirti, thank you for being a guest on the show. I really enjoyed the energy between us. I think you are a very, very special lady. And I want to thank the listener for tuning in. I think that one of the wisest lessons in this episode is that you have a choice in how you approach situations. Maybe you can't change the circumstances, but you can choose how you look at things. And with that, you will see it differently and change the outcome. And another lesson is to speak freely. Katie said in this episode that at first she chose silence over articulation and that manifested on her health. I second that. We both also know the freedom that comes from speaking freely, to not being afraid to speak out and just to speak your truth. It is like you start to breathe again. So if I can recommend you one thing, it would be to stand in your power and to speak your truth. You can find the show notes, links and references at alianaloyega.com. If you liked this episode, please give it a rating in the iTunes store. We come back shortly with a new episode of the PAVE podcast. Until then, bye bye.